This is the Biblical Mind Podcast, produced by the Center for Hebraic Thought. Honest five-star reviews help others find this podcast. Visit the magazine at thebiblicalmind.org for articles and videos that explore the deep structures of Scripture. Did the Black Church, on the whole in the Americas, did they basically have a better social political understanding of scripture. Yeah, yeah, I think I mean I think it's a great um a great point and I would uh I mean I would wholeheartedly agree with it that that the black church on the whole did and does uh have a better, you know, social political ethical kind of the- uh, theology than uh than the, the dominant culture and um you know I think that you know, we see that across the board in church history that when the you know when the church is really kind of um in league with or in serving the interests of power uh, and and empire, then it, it often you know doesn't really reflect the beloved community, the the kingdom of Jesus that we see the early church reflecting that that really lived and breathed in the margins. But throughout church history, when we see powerful movements of revival and 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 gospel witness, it's oftentimes in situations of marginality and uh, and subalternity or uh, or you know context of oppression. And and so I think in the United States, uh, you have you know in the, you know as just one of many examples you have this um this dominant church uh that's that is supporting the the theft of land uh of mm-hmm. from indigenous people that's supporting uh, manifest destiny and uh and genocide of indigenous peoples and the trafficking of african uh humans uh in and the you know the subjugation of african peoples that that built this country and this hemisphere really um and you have a you you almost have again really like kind of two, to use the Didache language, you have two ways almost. You have these mm-hmm. kind of two different, uh, almost uh, seemingly opposing, uh, you know, kind of strands of theology. One, again, that is supporting this, um, these, these evil systems of oppression. Um, and then on the other hand, you have this church movement that's actually happening in the context of the very people who are being oppressed. And so you have in, on, on one level, you have the same faith, it's Christianity. And, and, and yet at the same time, it feels like complete two different, two completely different religions in a way, one that is supporting the um, kind of systems of oppression and then another church that is actually calling for the liberation of the very people who are being oppressed. And I think, you know, Frederick Douglass said it best that, um, you know, in his autobiography that um, that there's a sharp distinction between what, to use his language, the Christianity of Christ and the Christianity of this land. And he says to be the friend of one is to, of necessity, be the enemy of the other uh, and that you, you can't be down with both of them. And so I think that, um, but again, you know, I think that 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 um, church that 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 system of theology the the, the theology and the praxis that developed uh, in the Negro spirituals and in, and among the earliest uh, Black Christians in the United States and in the and other parts of the diaspora uh, is really a a much closer reflection of the New Testament church that the apostles uh, gave witness to than than a, than an expression or a kind of a version of Christianity that envisions. Um, you know, again, an, an oppressive empire and, and supports that. Okay, so you said a lot just right there. And so I want to like go back and dig in a few uh, places. So uh, 
the church in support of empire and the support of traditional levers of power. Um, I can imagine all we can imagine all the stories that we know of Western civilization uh, of the, the West where this has happened. I do also, you're an early church scholar, so you'll have to correct me on this if I've gotten it wrong. But, um, you know, the, the, uh, the Acts of Thomas, not the Gospel of Thomas, but the Acts of Thomas, uh, he, he goes and serves the, purpose, the purposes of the king, King Gundafar there. Uh, so he goes immediately into the service of the empire. Um, and I also think of Nubia, which I think you would correct me and say, or sorry, it wasn't Ethiopia, but it was actually Nubia that um, the gospel goes down to. It goes down into the court of Queen Candace. So it, it encounters empire everywhere it goes. How would you distinguish that from what you just described as the church in the service of the empire? Yeah, that's a that's such a great question. I'm so glad you asked that because it helps us to, you know, see how these dynamics played out even before the 17th or 16th century. Right, right, right. We don't even have to get into the European problems yet. Yeah, yeah. I, and 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 also, it really helps us to um, humanize, uh, you know, all of us as a human race uh, because, you know, again, as as you mentioned, like you know, one thing that I encounter a lot in the early church, sometimes we have this kind of romanticized picture. And, and it's honestly, it's easy to have a romanticized picture of the dominant, let's say the dominant white church in America mm-hmm. and the black church, like what, right. I mean, in that, in this space in the United States, for the most part, um, you know, the, you know, the dominant church has either been actively supporting acts of oppression or, uh, or at best, oftentimes turning a blind eye or uh, just kind of focusing on spiritual salvation and not really actually questioning, you know, maybe giving, giving out food and doing charity, but not actually questioning how to destabilize and undo acts systemic uh, systems of oppression. Right. And then on the other hand, you have the black church, which is just this powerful prophetic witness of, 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 of gospel truth and biblical authority and also of, you know, civil rights and systemic change. And it's almost just like, again, this, this night and day. So it's almost easy to kind of romanticize and think that European Christianity is just like uh, completely oppressive and that um, and that, you know, African descended Christianity is just this idealized perfect thing. Um, Mm. But in actuality, we look at early church. Uh, there are actually examples of of even, in, uh, you know, I like to use kind of these, uh, you know, kind of this term of imperial Christendom, right? There's hmm. there's uh, there's God's vision of, you know, of, of 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 the gospel and the kingdom that, again, lives and breathes in the margins. And in the black church context, you know, we call that uh, gospel hymenote uh, or a gospelist perspective. Um, but then there's this imperial Christendom. And again, it's a it's something that I would say really goes back to the time of Constantine and the Roman church where. We're starting in the 300s. Uh, the church was able to, for the first time, envision a powerful church that a church mm. that actually can have social and civic power and can be determinative for uh, not just religious but all other aspects of society. That Christians can be dominant. That was not that was never conceivable, um, you know, in the earliest centuries of the church. Even you know, even you mentioned uh, Thomas in the 200s. Uh, well, the Acts of Thomas is written in the 200s, and it gives it tells a story about Thomas, and he talks to the king, but he's mar- Right. And he he even actually takes the materials that the king of Gundashapur gave him and he uses it to serve the poor. So he's actually he's actually he's actually engaging with empire, but he's doing it on behalf of the margins and he's martyred for it uh, ultimately. And so but after after the time of Constantine, you have this new idea of that Christians can be in power. And it wasn't only in the Roman Empire that this uh, that this idea uh, really came to fruition, but you also had in Armenia and in Georgia, mm-hmm. you had Christian empires that they themselves, uh, you know, sometimes committed acts of religious violence against minorities or against other people. Another example on the African continent is Ethiopia. 
Ethiopia became a Christian nation in the 300s around this, you know, just a little bit after the Roman Empire and, and Constantine. And there are actually examples of Ethiopian Christian Empire uh, oppressing uh, and using Christianity to justify acts of genocide in upon other surrounding neighbors in Africa, mm. especially when you get into the Solomonic periods of the 13th or 14th century. So uh, all that to say that there, uh, while Western or European or Roman con- Christian context and in the dominant culture in the U.S., uh, when we look at, you know, manifest destiny and we look at transatlantic slave trade and, and we look at uh, colonization around the world, uh, yeah, European and Western Christians have 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 used Christianity to justify acts of oppression at a broader and bigger scale more than other cultures. But at the same time, there are there have been other examples mm-hmm. of how even other cultures on a micro level have tried to do so and have done similar things. And so it shows how there is a universal um, proclivity towards power and using religion in the service of economic and political and militaristic power, and that all of us can fall prey to that. And even in, in instances, various cultures, uh, even outside of the West, have fallen prey to that. And so it's, it, it really humbles us to remember that all of us as Christians, no matter what color, no matter what context, no matter what time period, have to resist that desire that we all humanly will feel to to um, to really grab a hold of of imperial or political power. And again, remember that we follow the Prince of Peace and uh, and, you know, the, the man of sorrows and the person who incarnates himself in the margins. And he calls us to also uh, be a, um, you know, really good to be a witness to good news to the poor. So if you'll allow me to skip around with you, a historian, uh, a couple thousand years, um, coming back into the African-American church, you know, in the last 400 years, as you say, uh, that's developed in the Americas in the West. Um, I, well, I wonder if you would separate out, because most people know that the majority of uh, West African slaves actually went to Brazil and to the West Indies, and a small minority went to the Americas. Do you see the theological tradition splitting that way as well, North and South America, um, Afro-Brazilian uh, theology versus American African-American theology? Yeah, yeah, that's a great question. Um, you know, I, I haven't, uh, I, I haven't looked into, you know, yeah, a lot of the, um, you know, Afro South uh, African communities in South America, especially, you know, theological context as much as I would like to. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, I definitely think that there is a, um, you know, like a lot more of, a, for example, in even in Afro Latino or Afro Caribbean communities uh, in South America, there's, uh, you know, especially up until uh, the 20th century, uh, there's a lot more Catholic, I think, uh, hmm. you know, presence there right. as well. Right. You think of people like again one of the first black uh, um, black American uh, in the sense of Americas. Uh, first one of the first you know black Christian uh, saints was Saint Martin de Porres from Peru in the 16th mm-hmm. century, and so um, you know and and you know was also a patron saint even to this day of the poor and of social justice. And uh, mm-hmm. he himself underwent you know racism uh, you know even in the in the Catholic Church in Lima and Peru. But even now today is one of the most venerated saints across South America. And so you know, I think that's maybe you know one difference. Whereas in the North America, you have more, the black church is a much more heavily Protestant uh, or, you know, uh, you know, if we want to use that word, but not not so much of a Catholic, uh, you know, context. But one of the through lines, even if we compare, you know, people like, you know, St. Martin or uh, or, you know, others, is that there still is this kind of the, the common experience of black people in the diaspora is that of oppression and marginalization. So even if we want to triangulate it and go over to Europe, um, it's same thing when you look at, you know, people like Olaudo Equiano or, you um, 
or uh, Otobu Kugwano that, you know, similarly, there are folks who are connecting with the Church of England. And so, you know, because of the dominance of dominant culture, Christianity in North, South America or, or in Europe, that, you know, black Christians find themselves associating or being uh, kind of uh, exposed to different strands of, or different denominations of dominant culture Christianity. But the common experience is that of slavery and oppression and, mm. and then later segregation. And so there's a, I would say there's a through line uh, in black theology uh, across the diaspora, again, of one that going back to our first question, uh, one that's a holistic uh, vision of the kingdom, whether it's Catholic or, or Protestant or Anglican or whatever, there's this holistic vision of the gospel of, uh, uh, the gospel is both uh, spiritual liberation and social liberation as well. So. Right. Well, I'm going down to New Orleans, down so I, that actually ties my next two questions together. If you could explore that just a little bit more, because you said uh, the, the black church in the last 400 years has typically had better theology. Uh, and you talk a lot about the dualisms of white theology or the, the dualisms that white theology tends to struggle with and think and put at a position of importance. So what is that dualism? What are the two things that whites are struggling with that maybe we shouldn't be and that uh, that you don't see as, as prominent in the black church? Yeah, yeah, I think, um, yeah, I think, I think you said it best, uh, you know, really uh, kind of that, that dualistic, you know, tendency that again, I would say all goes all the way back to the fourth century, um, where you have this dominant Roman church that is really promoting this idea of a Christian empire and a Christian nation mm. and a Christian emperor and a Christian military <laughs> that, that, that goes out into the world and serves the interests simultaneously of one particular empire that positions itself as being the light into the world, uh, and also the kingdom of God on earth that's going to impose itself upon other other nations that we have that same uh, kind of um, theology even today you know we see now we see dominant culture American religious nationalism uh, that you know I would say is a you know and, and there's so many examples in the 1700 years of various iterations of it um, but I think along with that you had you know really the um, the you know even beginning uh, in the fourth century you had kind of the with with the rise of of an imperial Christendom, you you also have a departure from biblical ethics, right? Of of the mm. of the idea that Christians, and again in the New Testament and for the first three centuries, Christians around the world were and and still are today. But for the first three centuries, it was the dominant perspective of Christians that Christians are those people who exist and live and breathe in the margins, and that they are those people who divest their wealth and they divest their resources, and just like Jesus and the apostles talk about, uh, in order to uh, empower the poor and preach the gospel and hold to biblical orthodoxy. All those things, again, are holistic. Um, and I think that in the fourth century, you start to see more of a departure from that kind of biblical ethic and more of a, you know, uh, we could say maybe nominate, uh, kind of nominal or more of a uh, popularizing kind of Christianity. And that actually gave rise to a more extreme ascetic uh, context, where again, you had these the development of these two ways that, that the ascetic movement in Christianity really took off majorly in the fourth century, in many ways, as a response to this kind of uh, emerging dominant perspective of Christianity that envision Christianity as the winners or to use Luther's, again, jumping around millennia to use Luther's terminology, right? That there is a beginning more and more of this theology of glory. And so it, it, it almost necessitated these Christians to dig deeper into this theology of the cross and saying, no, like the, the same way that we were being martyred in the first three centuries, that's the same kind of rigor uh, and ethic that we need to continue to maintain. And it was almost being, now that Christians were in political power, at least in the Roman empire, um, now we have to remember that was the opposite in the Persian empire. And in right. fact, there was a causality that as Christianity 
Christianity became dominant in the Roman Empire, it actually resulted in the oppression of Christians in the Persian Empire in modern day Iraq, Iran and mm. Afghanistan, that because Christianity was now being perceived as this Roman religion, that that created a problem for non-Roman people, uh, and especially in Persia, which was Rome's main enemy, that Persian Christians were being forced to choose between their Christian and Persian identity, which was not an issue uh, before that time. Uh, right. But I think, you know, um, I think that, you know, that, that, but jumping back to the to the question i think that that's really where you know we started to see more of a christian witness that that wanted to hold on to the the call of christians to really be among the margins but I, but but at the same time there's this imperial christendom or there's this other way that again has still been with us that again divorces the um the uh again the kind of the 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 truth aspects of Christianity, uh, if we can say that, from the from the justice aspects of Christianity, and we, you know, we th that that's been going on for a long time. But I would say that in 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 some way, the last thing I'll say about it is that in some ways we're living in a more diff an even more difficult time uh, now uh, because in the since the nineteenth century we've had. Uh, like kind of a more modern iteration of this of this binary or this bifurcation, and that came in the form of this theological and academic divide between again truth and justice. That we've had these liberal conservative binaries that mm -hmm. that the Western dominant church in Europe first, uh, with the rise of kind of the Enlightenment and the Industrial Revolution and 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 you know Darwinism and Marxism. There's this whole emergence in 19th century Europe of theological liberalism of people who are theologians and biblical scholars and Christians, but don't don't actually believe in the Bible and don't actually believe in, you know, uh, in the kind of the core Christian faith. Uh, and then, you know, as that comes over into America, into the Americas, North and South, that same kind of binary starts to, uh, on the more liberal side, starts to take on forms of social justice and, you know, uh, social gospel, liberation, theology, whatever, whatever these, you know, different concepts are called. Um, but you, you have in the, in the West, especially in academia, um, but it trickles into even denominational splits and, and, you know, organizational splits that you have this liberal conservative schism that we're really still living in. And mm -hmm. we're still seeing today that you have Christian denominations, uh, academic institutions, you know, uh, and all other kind of nonprofits. And you have, and I'm just kind of generalizing, but it's it's a generalization that really proves true in a lot of spaces that you have one side that emphasizes truth and the need to hold firm to orthodox theology and belief, and and then and maybe even individual righteousness, and then you have another side that emphasizes social equity and 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 justice and equality, and 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 it's almost like um, the more one emphasizes their side the more they move further away from the other side uh, and, and, and they just keep moving further away from each other. And we're still living and seeing that right now when it, but again, going back in reality, we see that these things in the gospel are inseparable and, and undivided, but that's the, that's the space that we're really living in. So you say in several places that, um, that the black church, there's been a large portion of the black church that has kind of refused to let these split into truth versus righteousness, or you know, truth versus justice, uh, righteousness. And of course, in in the Bible, as you point out, in both the Hebrew Bible and the New Testament, righteousness and justice are are often paired together. So that really, for for biblical scholars, we consider them almost synonymous. That they're two sides of the same coin. Um, that'll be confusing for a lot of people, though. I think a lot of people will think of. You know, they've been raised in the American religion of Christianity, the majority religion that says something like your most the most important important thing in this world is your personal relationship with Jesus Christ, right? And my personal piety and my personal sense of repentance and God's personal forgiveness of me. 
So why do you think it is, and I, I'm just asking you to wildly speculate, or maybe you have a, uh, a great answer uh, for this you've already researched, but why do you think it is that um, the African-American community was less able to give up what I would call the biblical view of righteousness and justice that are forged together and often in persecution? Um, and maybe we can talk about how the white church has kind of uh, made an industry out of this uh, this division between uh, righteousness and justice. Yeah, yeah. I think. I mean, I think it goes back to again, you know, kind of my the you know uh, tapping into my early church uh, roots. There, I mean, Tertullian said it best that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the gospel. Um, right. And and you know, Tertullian was an early North African theologian, um, and he was living under persecution under Septimus Severus and 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 other Roman emperors that were strongly persecuting uh, Roman North African Christians. And I think it's not a, a surprise that it's from some of those North African Christians uh, like Perpetuum Felicity and mm. um, and. Peter of Alexandria and all these other North Africans that that were uh, the most rigorous about, again, not letting go of both the truth and the justice of the gospel, um, but also embracing the idea that that following Jesus in this world, um, it, it will often mean that we don't have access to power. Now, that does that's not a call to, you know, kind of some kind of withdrawal or this kind of we're going to you know, try to disassociate ourselves from the world because they understood uh, Jesus's prayer. They said, my prayer is not that you take them out of the world, um, but they were deeply engaged in society and politics in in government. Um, but at the same time, we're standing true to the gospel and thus, you know, we're, we're losing power and losing authority and losing influence and, and we're being persecuted. And, and I think that you know, again, the, the black church, the history of, of 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 our people in the in the Western Hemisphere um, has been one of oppression, and so uh, having having um, context of oppression and having context of marginalization, um, it, it really helps to keep some. It, it helps to keep one uh, really in the center of God's vision for His people. Um, but it goes again. It goes back to what Jesus was saying that that you know, man, how dangerous it is, or how difficult it is for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. It's like anybody who has power or has access to to power and privilege is going to be tempted to uh, use that privilege um, in, as a way of escaping. You know, Jesus's call to pick up our cross and and bear it. Uh, and and I think that when you when you're when you're dealing whether it's you know African Americans in this country dealing with slavery and Jim Crow and now dealing with mass incarceration and gentrification. And, and redlining and and all these other kind of things that we've dealt with, or any person, any marginalized people group around the world, um, that 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 experience of marginalization is one that um, that if it if if one is beyond their own choices, put in that kind of situation, and if they're a follower of Jesus, they are going to have, I would say, uh, probably an exegetically a, a, a closer uh, read and a better read yeah. of scripture than, than, than those of us, you know, who are usually in situations of privilege, but, but even still, there's a, there's a, there's a way forward uh, for those of us who find ourselves beyond our, our own choice uh, as well in situations of dominance and privilege and power that there's still, a, there's a Zacchaeus road uh, mm. to enter into the kingdom. Uh, and there's a Barnabas road to, to, to divest wealth and to divest and put power and privilege uh, at the feet of the church and the kingdom of God to use it and leverage it and then willfully enter into the marginalization uh, that our global body of Christ shares uh, around the world. But but if yeah, if we're uh, and I think but I, again, I think that, you know, when you when you have people like, let's say, the black church in America or any other marginalized people group who is forcibly put in situations of marginalization uh, and they're followers of Jesus, they're going to probably be the 
people that the global church should be looking to the most for leadership and mm. for theological and ethical kind of uh, lifestyles. And, and those are the, and that, and that, those are the very people we see in the new Testament, the unschooled ordinary uh, hood brothers like Peter and mm-hmm. John. Those are the, those are the leaders, you know, that the, that the, the wealthy, the Barnabases and the other people actually get behind. Um, and so, yeah. Yeah. I, I want to come back to that kind of how now shall we live given, given all everything that you said, uh, in a moment. But, um, I mean, it, if I could summarize what you just said, I, I'm, I have a visual image in my head that it's pretty easy that if I'm on my like video game system all day long, chilling out, doing whatever I want, having pizza delivered to my house and I'm good to go. And, and I can walk out on the street wearing whatever I want. And nobody's going to stop me and ask me what I'm doing. Like if that's the nature of my life, uh, versus like my stepfather, it's, it's difficult. You know, he was raised African-American in, in the South under Jim Crow laws. It's difficult to think about my personal relationship with God when you're bending over to drink from a water fountain marked colored. Right. And that like it, like, it's just difficult to just say like, you know what I need to do? I need to straighten out my relationship with Jesus. That's all I need to do because you're feeling those pressures constantly. And when you're in a community that feel, feels these pressures and sees these pressures, I wonder, do you, would you say that they actually see things in the text that the rest of us cannot if we've if we've not felt such pressures as a community? Oh, definitely. I mean, I th- again, going back to the history of this country uh, and the development of these, you know, kind of dominant. Uh, there's there's dominant Christendom even in the U.S. and then there's there there's what Albert Rabbitoe calls slave religion. Uh, you know, uh, uh, God rest rest in peace, brother. Just actually passed and mm. transitioned, but you know, Albert Rabbitoe's classic work, slave religion. Uh, you know, also talks about the the again this development of of you know to use Harriet Jacobs terminology, the old Satan's church here below, but. Uh, to God's heavenly church, you know, I hope to go. And so, you know, I think you have, you definitely have that, that tradition that sees things in the text um, that even either, you know, I mean, the, the, in the spirituals and in early black preaching, the, the close connection that, uh, that the black church has often always felt to the Hebrews in the Exodus narrative, um, that there, that that's something that uh, was removed from the slave Bible or was completely, so it was either not seen mm. by the dominant church or it was intentionally pulled out, <laughs> uh, you know, passages in the text that clearly call for liberation of the poor and the oppressed and for God's people to, uh, to know what we know what God's required of us to, to, to do justice and walk humbly with the poor. And, and, you know, the, these things were pulled out or glossed over. And, um, and I think even still we have these arguments about whether it's CRT or we have, uh, you know, prominent evangelicals, uh, uh, making these, you know, kind of statements about social justice has nothing to do with the gospel that we still have people that, again, it's, it's, uh, you can't read people's hearts, uh, but, but it's got to be some mixture of either people are just blind to the clear call to God's people to act in justice uh, on behalf of the marginalized or in, uh, an intentional kind of deceitful way of twisting uh, the tech and God's word uh, to remove it from its ethical implications for God's people. But yeah, I think you're exactly right that when you are the one being forced to drink from the colored fountain, you, you're in a position where you're not able to ignore, um, you know, God's call uh, for, you know, for justice and liberation uh, for all people. Those prominent evangelical leaders, I'm sure you and I have some names in mind uh, when you say that, but I've given up thinking that it's naivete or that they're just ignorant. I'm, I'm, I'm pretty convinced some of them, like they know exactly what they're doing and they've got some other agenda, but that's just my own, my own read after watching it for a couple decades. Um, 
So uh, I think, you know, you say the black church has felt a strong affinity for the Hebrew people. Part of that storyline, though, is that God, I mean, he tells Abraham, I'm going to let your children come into the land of Egypt and they're going to fall under slavery. And many Jewish interpreters, including uh, one of our fellows for the Center for Hebraic Thought, he would say that actually God intentionally used the situation of Egyptian slavery and it was a cruel, oppressive slavery. And of course, if you compared it to American slavery, it probably wouldn't actually look, would probably would not look that bad as compared to the peculiar institution of American slavery. But it was cruel and oppressive. And Josh Berman would say this was actually in order to like bring them out, not that he just liberated them from the hand of Egypt, but actually he liberated them as an equal group of people. Like there were no noblemen, there were no high status, low status, that they all came out looking at each other. And Moses' own son was named Gershom. You know, I was a I was a foreigner there. Like he identifies himself as a foreigner. Um, and then you see the laws that are predicated on this is uh, on how you're supposed to release. Uh, you can take uh, servants, but you have to release them after so much time. And then the treatment of the foreigner. So uh, this is a long way of saying, uh, like God seems to have done this intentionally with Israel to create a kind of nation who would breathe justice and extend that justice in the world. They did not like they very quickly went the other direction, but, but that seems to be the intention. I, there's a similar question you get with Holocaust. Like, did God do this to the Jews in order to like, you know, make them the people they should become. Of course, there's a lot of like Orthodox atheists that came out of the Holocaust as well. I wonder how uh, your perception, and this is just your perception of it, how does the black community struggle with that question? Like, did God lead us into the West African slave trade in order to make us into this kind of people? Yeah, yeah, that's, I mean, that's a, that's a great question. And I mean, there's, a lot, you know, I think a lot of parallels. And um, I mean, yeah, I, th- I think that'd be a great thing to, um, you know, for even a lot of theologians and uh, religious leaders in the black community to really have like a colloquium on, honestly, mm. it would be fascinating. Cause I, I don't, I don't know, uh, honestly, how, how much I could even speak to what a dominant perspective is, but I know from my perspective and from many other people, uh, historically, and even today, I think, I think it would be seen a little bit differently. And I, I think that while I, I would say that while we tend, for example, like we tend to, you know, the black church identifies theologically with Israel, but doesn't put ourselves in that situation, right? Mm-hmm. Like that we are Israel. And actually, I think there's been more of that in the dominant culture in America, right? That especially when we get into militarism, that, well, it, you know, conquest narratives and see, well, God did this for God called Israel to do this. Therefore, God's calling us to do this in our military. Mm-hmm. And I think in the black church, there's a lot more of like a, no, there's like an allegorical connection. But we, we, we also know that like what God called Israel to do was unique kind of, uh, there was a unique relationship that God had with Israel in the Old Testament that we as Christians, you know, who are, you know, uh, grafted in and uh, we're saved by grace. Um, and, and that that's, that's a different kind of relationship, but, but there's, you know, again, kind of an allegorical, you know, connection and understanding. And so even with, um, so even with things like that, even if, even if, uh, there was a, even if there would be a perception among like, say black Old Testament scholars, uh, in agreement with that, that reading of, of Israel's narrative of Exodus of God leading them in. Uh, I, my sense is that most people wouldn't read our experience in the same way. Um, you know, of now, I mean, certainly there's like, there's growing prominent 
black religious communities that are not Christian that actually do read it exactly that way and literally mm. uh, connect the African-American story as an extension of the Hebrew story. But among black Christians, I would say that that's and at least my perspective is, is, is one that would not say, no, God, God did not intend actually for the transatlantic slave trade to happen and that that was an act of evil um, and that God yet still worked through uh, and that God works all things for those who are called according to his purpose and who love him. And so, um, and, I, and, and one example of this is actually, and again, talking about even Hebrew slavery, you were talking about the differences and similarities of that. Probably one of the best examples of that during the slave time was the, the biography of Otobu Kugwano, who was a West African uh, slave who was stolen and brought to the Caribbean, then ultimately went to England and, uh, and gained his freedom. Uh, he became a Christian and was a theologian and exegete and part of the Sons of Africa, which is an abolitionist group. And he actually wrote in his biography, his biography was actually less of a story of his life. And it was actually an exegetical treatise on the issue of slavery. And in the mm. early 1800s, in the throes of, of transatlantic slavery, when the reigning exegetical opinion uh, throughout the dominant culture world was that slavery is okay. And that God, in condo just like it was condoned in the Old Testament, it, it condones us to traffic slaves as well. Now, this black man in England writes a scathing exegetical critique against the dominant uh, perspective and actually goes on to make an argument about why the, the slavery we see in the Old Testament was a vastly different thing than the slavery that he himself experienced. And you know, condemned from the Bible, from biblical authority, actually condemned the the, the traffic of slavery. But he has a, uh, and I, I quoted in Gospel Hymen note, he has a statement, though, where he's reflecting on his own experience and likens it to Joseph and says that, mm -hmm. like Joseph, I, like Joseph, uh, what my brothers intended for my harm, God actually worked out for my good. And so it's not that that it's not that God intended this or called for this to happen, but God has been present with us in this and actually has used it. And so there's a gospel tradition, there's a musical tradition, there's a preaching tradition, there's a theology that we call gospel hymen or a, a gospelist theology that has emerged from the black church that God did not intend to happen. Uh, the way it happened. And yet God worked in it uh, because actually, again, this is going back to the bouncing back again, but the gospel was already making its way across the African continent, it, not only in North and in East Africa, but it was also making its way from African to African uh, throughout Central and West and South Africa. Um, but the marginalization of those early African Christian communities by the dominant culture in the Roman Empire, uh, and then later the subsequent transatlantic slave trade made it so that many Africans, but there were many who did still hear the gospel uh, indigenously as it was mm. intended to spread, I believe, uh, through God's providence and through his you know, mission to spread the gospel through the Hebrews who were in Alexandria and the Hebrews that were in Nubia and the Hebrews that were in Carthage. And then they spread the gospel to their non-Hebrew African neighbors. And it was intended to spread uh, indigenously and freely. Um, but European and dominant culture, Christianity and Christendom or imperial theology got in the way of that or attempted to get in the way of that. But God in his providence still worked things out. Uh, and now we're even able to reconnect back to these stories and these trajectories of free spreading Christian history. Um, and so, again, it's just a testament of how God will work all these things, even, even things he did not intend, but that human sin um, you know, intervened and, and, and imposed its way that God will still work, uh, work his will uh, even in the midst of that. Yeah, and, and you and you see even slaves who are. I've been reading Lisa Bowen's book, uh, African American Readings of Paul, and she shows how slaves who are almost exclusively preached to from Paul's, you know, "Slaves obey your masters" text, went on to read the rest of Paul and then read the Torah and then explain to their white masters why their their uh, theology was actually completely backwards. And I think what you're pointing out, or you seem to be flagging up, is 
you know, if you're in the dominant, let's just say dominant theological culture, you can make lazy readings of text. Uh, but if, if you're not, then you, you, uh, you actually can't afford to lose uh, and misunderstand the text, right? So there's, there's more at stake for the people who aren't necessarily in the dominant culture if they're being oppressed in some way. Um, I want to, uh, before we leave, I, I do want to talk about, you mentioned, you quote both D.L. Moody, Dwight Moody, uh, the famous evangelist, um, who brings a loaf of bread uh, and the gospel to a poor man. Uh, and you also quote uh, Billy Graham, who in the South during the Jim Crow period did not feel that he had the right or the didn't, didn't feel like he needed to address any of the Jim Crow laws that, that black folks were suffering under at that time. I wonder, you know, because I think a lot of people will have a lot of affection towards uh, Billy Graham as this great evangelist and Dwight Moody, you know, a, a very famous evangelist during the Chicago fires and afterwards. Um, but I wonder what's so dangerous about the message, you know, both what uh, what Moody does with the loaf of bread in the gospel and what and why isn't Billy Graham? I mean, is he uh, why can't we just say like, yeah, he's here to give the gospel. He's not here to like solve discrimination so what's so dangerous about those mentalities yeah that's I, I that's a great question and i mean i you know also grew up in a you know uh white evangelical um you know christian church uh that had a strong emphasis on spiritual salvation and evangelism. Um, you know, I, you know, I, you know, I went to uh, evangelical schools where these figures were highly venerated. So I, I feel the same way. Um, mm. And, uh, but I think, I think one of the dangers of it is again, going back into that, that binary, I mean, evangelicalism really comes out of one of, one of the halves of the gospel <laughs> that has mm. really been in, in, in the dominant culture. Again, there's a lot of resources in the black church uh, and the gospelist tradition of the black church. That really is a, I think an antidote in many ways, but, but, but evangelicalism or white evangelicalism uh, as it developed in these pivotal figures, you know, Gordon and Moody and, and, and then later, you know, Billy Graham. And it really comes out of like a bifurcated gospel an incomplete gospel um, just as, just as incomplete as a liberal progressive mainline Christianity that calls for social reform and social justice, but is wishy-washy or is relative on matters of truth or biblical authority or Christology mm -hmm. that, uh, um, you know, just as justice without without truth is incomplete, also a true message, something that is theologically or otherworldly or afterlife uh, context is correct or orthodox, but but is not uh, liberative for the oppressed uh, in, in this world is also an incomplete gospel. So I think it goes to, uh, you know, yeah, like what's the danger of saying, well, someone's just here to preach the gospel and not enter into social issues, as Graham himself said. I think that I think what's wrong with that or the answer to explore what's wrong with that is is a, is a, is a further and more amplified definition of what the gospel is. Mm -hmm. uh, and so if, you know, if the gospel is, um, as Jesus himself said, good news to the poor, then how is it good news to the poor if I'm telling somebody, don't worry about the segregation and don't worry about the mass incarceration and the police brutality you are in, in you are experiencing now, just believe in Jesus and it'll all be better later. That's not good news for the poor. That's not that's not the full gospel. You're not giving the full gospel, and so that is that's an incomplete gospel. Um, and uh, and so I think that's you know um, yeah I think that's really what um, is is the problem with that. So final question while I have you here, um, if again if you're in a majority world uh, and, and, and we're saying majority, I'm, I'm saying it strategically. I assume you are too because we don't need to assume that white is the majority. We can go into lots of cultures and find 
all kinds of different majorities that are would be non-white, non-European, and and have similar problems. Um, but um, if you are kind of in that majority world where you haven't thought through your theology, where you really have lived on the kind of pietistic, it's God's about my soul and salvation, and I don't know about all this other stuff. Um, like, what's the, what do we do when I, you know, in some ways I'm sitting here thinking like, yeah, on the whole, the black church, because of their experiences and their refusal to give up into like a pietistic soul saving notion of Christianity, they know more, they see more than I do into the text. So now what <laughs> do I just shut up, shut down? Uh, do I go to a black church? Cause I know people who've done that and they're like, Oh, well, and they stay there for a while and they're like, Oh, I was there. I made a too quick of a jump. And I actually, there were some other issues I wasn't ready for. Um, so I think there's lots of very fast, simple moves that people might make, but, um, what would you suggest that people do? Like just practically speaking, like I'm a Christian. I want today when I've really put to practice what you're saying. Mm, yeah, that's, I, I think that's a great question as well. Um, yeah, I think, uh, you know, I think that, um, you know, really, um, I think finding ways to uh, really be taught and introduced. Again, I just I really I really love the way that in the, um, you know, in the New Testament um, that Jesus, you know, well, Jesus himself incarnates, himself, you know, God incarnates in the hood uh, and that he uses um, and he built his church upon, you know, apostles and leaders who are themselves from the hood. Um, but at the same time, there's like it's a multi-ethnic movement and multi-economic. There's uh, yeah, it's not like, um, you know, it's not like there's no place for this. Like there's anybody of any demographic for whom there is no place. Right. Uh, but there's room for everybody. Um, and to, uh, to put and some it, flesh on those bones, like just tell people what you're talking about uh, with Jesus, the, with Jesus and his movement how were different people involved? I mean, we know the poor people of Nazareth and disciples, but what about, where, where were the rich, rich people in there that help out just to be clear? Yeah, definitely. I mean, you know, I think, I think, um, you know, we see all these great examples uh, in the new Testament of people who come from places of power and places of privilege, uh, Zacchaeus and Gamaliel, right. Uh, mm. You know, and, and Barnabas and, and, um, you know, uh, and Lydia, like all these like wealthy, prominent, uh, you know, people who are welcomed into the beloved community, into the kingdom, uh, into the church. And one of the things I think is interesting about those people is that there's always examples uh, accompanying their their story where they they give up that wealth and they give up that power and they throw in their lot with people that in the world that they lived in, they would not have been expected to throw in their lot with, but they were actually living in a society that they were um, not supposed to be fraternizing with. And so I think that that's, so, I mean, you know, we, you know, we mentioned, I think, you know, I think actually it could be a great idea to consider going to, you know, uh, biblically, biblically sound, theologically sound, uh, black or Hispanic or indigenous churches and really, uh, trying to fellowship with other folks and, uh, being led by, uh, you know, being mentored by leaders of color from BIPOC communities. Um, I mean, of course, like reading books and, 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 and being able to, again, yeah. see the gospel for its holistic nature. Um, uh, and we should and, hold you know, up your book here, uh, Gospel Hymen Note, which is a collection of essays from uh, lots of prominent scholars on the topic. So there's a great one to start with. 
Yeah, that's right. You know, and and there's so many, you know, more and more. I think just reading stuff like that and and being uh, and building relationships and again being mentored and go maybe going to going and fellowshipping in churches. Uh, and then also, I think the last part is again kind of like a Gamaliel, um, you know, is to you know keep one's presence uh, to the degree that God is calling and and it's healthy and sustaining and and there's actually some opportunity there to keep one's place in positions of power and authority and speak prophetically to mm-hmm. that on behalf of your brothers and sisters who are from marginalized communities and to whether it's at the Thanksgiving dinner table or whether it's at a board table or uh, whatever the case may be to utilize those things. And so rather than, uh, yeah, rather than uh, intentionally just trying to walk away from or be done with uh, these these kinds of um, institutionalized or institutions of power to actually maintain a presence in them and try to use that prophetically uh, again and be a bridge uh, between the, those resources and your brothers and sisters in marginalized contexts. Yeah, I think that that is so important to hear because I think if you're trapped in the personal piety, soul salvation mentality, you think like, oh, okay, I have wealth. And I have a position. I should just leave all of that because that's what's most important for my soul. And you're saying, no, no, no. Think broader. Get outside of your own salvation. Get outside of your own piety. And uh, get think community. Think global, as they say, right? Think global. Act local. Um, that's great, Doctor Vince Bantu. Thank you so much for your leadership in this uh, on this topic and uh, for providing us so much wisdom and so much to think about here. Oh, thank you. You've been listening to the Biblical Mind Podcast, exploring the deep structures of Christian scripture. For more, visit the magazine at thebiblicalmind.org. Subscribe to this podcast at all the usual places so you never miss an episode. 